Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Hey, if you brought a copy of the scriptures, would you open with me to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews 8. We're going to continue in this series we've been working through for uh, a number of months now. If you're new to Inglewood or if you're new again, maybe uh, you've been back around for a little bit. I just wanted to let you know we've been working through a series for a number of of weeks now, just kind of walking through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, section by section. And uh, because it's Easter, I thought, man, maybe I should try something different. And then I'm just blown away. God just providentially drops this passage in. And I want to talk with you this morning on the subject of, uh, of the resurrection and uh, what we gain from that, the results of the resurrection, if you will. So we're going to deal with all of chapter 8 in Hebrews uh, today. So wanted you to know that and be aware of it. And man, I'm telling you, I'm, uh, it's been a great morning so far. I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, this morning kind of kicked off with us. Um, uh, so many of you joining us out at Rocky Mountain Memorial Gardens for a community sunrise service. And um, my family asked me when I got back home, they said, how many people are there? I said, what I always say, somewhere under a million. And... Uh, that's so old to them, they don't even do that anymore. They don't even snicker at that anymore. But anyway, so I don't know, a bunch of folks, about a third of the folks there, I think probably were not connected to Inglewood. So uh, what excites me about that is that there were people this morning that maybe for the first time heard the gospel. Maybe for the first time heard that Jesus uh, actually saves and that because of Jesus' resurrection, there's hope. And, and hey, may, that may be your story this morning. You may be here and Maybe you didn't even intend to come to church this morning, or maybe you didn't intend to come to Inglewood, but your mama held hostage the ham that you're going to eat for lunch afterwards, and she said, if you're going to eat Easter dinner with us, you're going to come to church, and uh, maybe that's the case. And if so, I want you to know, man, I'm glad you're here, because there's something about Jesus, and there's something about the resurrection that's different than any other religion, makes him different than any other religious leader. There's a truthfulness about this story in the gospel that's connected to the resurrection that only applies to followers of Jesus because Jesus is different. Jesus is better. In fact, that's been the theme that we've been walking through or working through in the book of Hebrews, how the writer of Hebrews has presented Jesus as the better one all throughout this process. He's been explaining how he's better. He began by telling us how Jesus is better than the angels and then how Jesus is better than Moses. By the way, that's a big deal if you had grown up in a Jewish tradition to have someone say that Jesus is better than Moses. To say that Jesus is better, a better way of righteousness than the law, that Jesus is a better priest before God and that he's a better high priest toward men. To say that Jesus is better is a bold claim, unless, of course, there's evidence that separates him, like the resurrection, for instance. And that's why we're going to spend this morning just kind of taking the next step in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8. So can I invite you, if you're able, if you join me by standing in honor of the Word of God, I know I'm going to read the entire chapter, all 13 verses. 
And if you're joining us from home, I hope you'll join with us. Follow along as well. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1. He says, now, the main point in what, we've been, in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since... There are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises." Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. And I'll write them on their hearts. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. And when he has said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever has become obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Would you pause right there and just join me in a word of prayer? Father, would you in these moments help us to understand not only how Jesus is, who he is, and what he's accomplished, but also teach us of this new covenant for which he mediates and only him. And then, Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified in the exaltation of your word as we uh, are exhorted by it, as we are encouraged by it, and Lord, in our response to it as you have your way. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to teach us even now, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. If you'd like to, by the way, if you're not, if you're not familiar with Englewood or kind of how we do things, if you'd like to follow along, we keep an outline. I say that's to help folks follow along with what's going on, but it's really accountability for the preacher so he doesn't chase a bunch of rabbits and end up sending you home at 1.30. Somebody should have said, praise the Lord. Maybe you want to stay till 1.30. I'm fine with that. I got nowhere to be. So anyway, hey, I want you to, if you want to get, get that outline, you can do that by scanning that QR code that's down by your feet there on those magnets uh, in the back of the chair in front of you or by texting notes to the note they give you there on the screen. Okay, so here we are in Hebrews chapter 8 and I want to show you three elements or three aspects of this idea of Jesus as the high priest that are true because of the resurrection. So three aspects of his high priesthood that are true because of the resurrection. 
Because Jesus is raised from the dead, there are some things that are true of him as high priest that we can take to the bank, that we can find encouragement in, that are evident and obvious because of the resurrection that make him unique and different from every other religious leader out there. Notice with me, first of all, the superior high priest. Jesus is superior as a high priest. Now, you noticed in that first verse there, it t- he starts talking about this main point. The main point we've been talking about is this. So what he's got to do, you've got to go back to chapter 7 in order to figure out where did that come from? What's his argument? What's he making here? And in the closing verses of chapter 7, the writer kind of presses the point of who Jesus is. He's a high priest different than all the descendants of Aaron, the first high priest, and all of his lineage. He's different than them. Because he comes from a line, he's different in a way that's, uh, he comes from a line that's unique, a line according to the order of, or in the likeness of, or in the same template of Melchizedek, this other priest that we learned about from the Old Testament. Notice chapter 7, verses 26 to 28, he says, for it's fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent and undefiled and separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Our high priest does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. We learned in those verses that Jesus offered with his own life as the unique son of God a a more excellent sacrifice than any priest before or any priest since. And God himself swore as much by an oath now to the main point, chapter 8 verse 1 where we began this morning. The main point in what what has been said is this, we, that's you and I, have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which God, which the Lord pitched, not man. You got to understand how the boldness of the claim for, for them to say Jesus is superior to all of the Aaronic priests is quite a statement. Here's what he says. Over the last Thousands of years in God's covenant relationship with his people, the priests were the one way to, 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 to uh, mediate a relationship between men who, who failed and God who's perfect. And they were the only way because God said so. And now to make the statement, yeah, 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 but Jesus is superior to all of that is no small claim. It's a big deal. After all, the high priest offered a sacrifice every year in the temple on behalf of people according to the covenant with God. He was necessary to offer a sacrifice for the people. But Christ, he says in our text today, who, he's, the, he's in the true tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, and therefore he mediates a better covenant. That was the point of verse 6 of our text. It says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Makes the statement that 
Jesus has a more excellent ministry than all other priests, that he is a mediator of a better covenant. By the way, if you thought it was a small claim to say he's a better priest than all the descendants of Aaron, to say that he offers a better promise to the people of God, then the covenant that made them the people of God is a bold, bold claim. And then to draw the conclusion that he is a source of better promises is absolutely overwhelming. I was trying to think, how in the world do you illustrate the bigness of this and the superiority of Jesus as a high priest? And then I consulted that source of wisdom, Google. And do you know how it's not unusual for people to claim that their favorite sports hero is better than somebody else's favorite sports hero? You know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, now you know I'm opposed to this stuff. I don't really like to talk about sports much. I don't like to mention about how there's one school in college sports that's better than all the other schools because, you know, that kind of thing is beneath me and it makes people feel bad that they're not all Clemson fans. But if I were given to such, ah, well, let's not even talk about college football. Let's just skip it. It's the one real sport, but let's skip that. And let's, here's one people get excited about, the NBA. Uh, so here's what I put into Google. This was my question for Google. It's better than chat AI, okay? Here's my question for Google. Greatest NBA player ever. 39.9 million opinions by way of article in 0.43 seconds. Most of them had a different figure as better. In fact, the uh, first article said that Michael Jordan was the greatest NBA player of all time. Those of us from North Carolina can go, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. But right below that article was one that said, no, no, no. LeBron James is definitely the greatest player ever as the all-time leading scorer in all the NBA. And then just below that was another one that said, no, no, Kobe Bryant is better than Michael, and he's better than anyone else. He was the bomb. He was the, they called him a goat. I thought, well, that was mean. And then I looked it up to find out what goat meant. And it says he's the greatest of all time. So I figured, man, they're making a big claim. Here's the deal. They're arguing who's superior over this, and they're measuring it by lots of different ways. It's no small thing to claim you're the superior one. So how did God back the claim that Jesus is superior to every single other priest, every single other law, every other leader? How can he make that claim? Through the resurrection. How can Jesus really be the undisputed superior high priest? Notice with me secondly, the sanctuary of the high priest. Here's what he says, Jesus, excuse me, I'm from South Carolina, you got to bear with me. Jesus ain't dead. That's in the New Chris version, but it's there. Every priest had a place to serve. All of the Aaronic priests had a place to serve. In fact, they would come into, in the days of the tabernacle, and they would serve on behalf of the people before God. And they would bring offerings and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. When the tabernacle um, became the temple, when Solomon built that, they came to the altar and there they offered sacrifices for. By the way, 
that's not much different in some ways than what I did this morning. I got in my little truck and I drove out of Red Oak and I went down to a road and I turned and I turned on the old carriage road and I took it for a ways and I turned on another road, then turned on another road, then turned on the Winstead Avenue. Drove down to 1350 South Winstead where you came to church this morning. Imagine that. It's the place where I work. Priests in that way were just like that, but what was different is... Those priests would come there because that was the only place where God would come to meet with his people. He said, I'll meet with you there. That's the place where we'll meet, at the temple or at the tabernacle. Now, you and I know that things are different today, but we have to first understand the context of how the writer was dealing with people in their day. They knew the place of the temple is the place where you met with God and they knew the priest is the way, person, the way that you got to God. The high priest would, one time a year, he would actually enter into not just a place where God would meet with them, but into the actual presence of God behind the veil from the holy place into the holy of holies where he would carry a blood sacrifice as a, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of himself and for all the people and he would place it on the mercy seat and there on the day of atonement Yom Kippur he would offer for for sins of the people so that they could they could be forgiven by God but then come on the next year he had to do the same thing again and he came there to do that now the question is is that the only place that you could meet with God is that where God lives no in fact that's exactly where the writer of Hebrews tells us in verses 1 and 2. Notice what he says. He says, the main point in what we have said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat, where? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord made or pitched, not man. Let me give you a couple words here to grab. First of all is the word sanctuary. When he speaks of the word sanctuary, it comes from the Greek word hagion or hagios. That's where we get the word saint from. And the word literally means holy or sacred or pure. When you're called a saint, here's what he says. He says, you are holy, you are set apart, sacred, you are pure. And this place where God is is holy and it's set apart, it's sacred and it's pure. You say, well, I'm not so holy and sacred and pure. You're not in your right. But when, catch it now, when the, when the Son of God laid down His life for you, when His blood covered your failures, it made you in the sight of God holy as He is holy. That would have been, if you were looking for a clue of a place to say amen, that would have been one of those good spots. You may not get another opportunity to agree with God's holiness in your life again. So if that ever comes up again, you might want to jump in on that. Are you following me? Yes. No. What are you talking about? And when do we get to the dinner? Are you following? Okay. Holiness, hagion. Secondly, the second word there is the word tabernacle or skenes. It literally means tent or dwelling. And here's what we know. God didn't actually dwell among his people. He didn't live among the people in the tabernacle or in the temple. But that's where the people would come in order to meet with him. 
Notice what Solomon says after he built the temple. Second Chronicles 6 and verse 18, he says, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. He said, he said, God, you couldn't live here. You're too big to fit in the place. You're too amazing. You're too awesome to fit into a place built by people. And then in verse 21, but listen to the supplications of your servant and of, the, of your people when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place, from heaven. Hear and forgive. Solomon was not confused. He didn't think, oh man, this is where God's going to live. He thought, this is where God's coming to meet. Why? Because God said, if you'll build it, I'll meet them there. And by the way, did he answer his prayer? He did. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 says, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. God met with his people at the temple. He met with the high priest at the temple. But Jesus ascended to the right hand in the place where God dwells, in the tabernacle not pitched by man but pitched by God in the place where God's holiness is all there is and Jesus ascended back there if Jesus were dead and rotting in a tomb somewhere he couldn't do that but because of the resurrection he's ascended and he sits right now at the right hand of the father in his presence today there he resides forever and at the same time the scripture teaches us he resides in our hearts. You say, how, how can he be in two places at the same time? I can't be in two places at the same time. It's a good thing you're not God. But God is, Jesus is able to be there and here. The priest had to say, God, won't you come and dwell among us? Won't you come and hear from your people? Won't you come and meet with us here? By the way, he did. In the tabernacle, when, when Moses would go to the tent of meeting, the glory of God would come and it would settle over the tent. It was so amazing that the people of God, they'd look at it, come out of their tent, stand and face the tent of meeting, looking to see what's going on over there, knowing the presence of God. They didn't go over there, but they looked to see, man, God's visiting over there. But he had to come and visit and then he'd leave and he'd come visit and then he'd leave. Jesus said, I know where he is. I'm going to go sit beside him. And at the same time, I'm going to reside in you. Where the priest could take and bring your offering and then carry it to a place where God would come and meet and, uh, and offer it up. Jesus said, I'm going to be right there in you and I'm going to be right there with him. I am a better mediator of a better covenant in a better place. The sanctuary of the high priest. By the way, you know he resides in you, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? There's nothing that would separate you from that. Why? Because in... In the days of the temple, of the tabernacle, in those days when there was a separation between the holy place and the holy of holies, between the place where the priest served and the place where God's presence was, there had to be a veil that stood between the two, that had to separate. Because if you just got strolling up into the presence of God and you, weren't, you didn't bring a sacrifice, you were dead. 
So they put a big curtain up there. Matter of fact, the curtain, the Bible says, was as wide. It was a handbreadth wide. I don't know how thick that is, but that's some heavy-duty stuff. That might have kept us warm this morning at Graveside. It was that thick. But when Jesus on the cross gave his life and he cried out for the matter of fact, here's what Mark said. It says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the man of war, the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Here's what he said, when Jesus cried out from the cross, this big separation between holy God and man, this, this big curtain was torn from the top to the bottom all the way down. He said, you can't separate them anymore. Why? Because now the only thing standing between man and God is Jesus himself. There's no curtain. In fact, the scripture says Jesus is the veil we're going to see that in Hebrews 10, that he's the veil that stands between us. And since he's the one that stands between us, he's able to help us. Chapter 7, verse 25 says, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, resurrection, to make intercession for them. He is our intercessor he is our mediator he is the one that stands between us Jesus does something that no other person no other high priest no other religious figure can do he dwells in the presence of the father and he also dwells in the heart of the believer and he can do so he can do that because he's the son he can do it as the son he can do it as God he can do it because he's holy and as such, he mediates a better covenant than all of the others. When I say all, what I mean is all. And not only the superior high priest and the sanctuary of the high priest, but notice the sustaining high priest. The sustaining high priest. Back to verses 1 and 2 again. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We, you and I, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat. I don't know if you underline in your Bibles or highlight on your iPhone, but that's a good one to, to highlight. Who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Now, in order for you to grab the big picture of that, you got to remember well, you'd either have to come from this context that understood the temple tabernacle, or you'd have to have somebody tell you about that. But in the temple, there was no place for the high priest to sit. They didn't even put a, they didn't even put a chair in there. You said they just have those stand-up tables that you get when you're having like a, a mixer at the chamber of company. No, they didn't have any place for him to sit. Why? Because his work was never finished. See, he'd have to go and offer a sacrifice and then he'd go back and he'd meet somebody else who'd messed up and he'd bring a sacrifice and he'd go back and meet somebody else and he'd mess up and he'd come back and bring another sacrifice. There's no place to sit. But when Jesus did his mediatorial work, when he came in and he brought a more perfect offering and established a more perfect covenant as a more perfect, as a superior high priest, he sat down. Why? Work was finished. 
He finished the work that had to be done. He accomplished it. He settled it, not only for then, but for all time. He settled it. Where the high priest and the, all those folks had to continue working, Jesus did not. There, under the old covenant, the priest's work was never finished. It was ongoing, always, perpetual, undone. And that, by the way, is not a defect. That's by design. In other words, when God established the covenant, He wanted it to not fully accomplish what Jesus would only be able to accomplish, but to point to it like a directional arrow. See, here's what the people knew. Every time they came in, man, we've blown it again. And in that sacrifice, the priest would take it and offer it before God and appease His holiness. Until Jesus. When Jesus came in, they said, Jesus, we've blown it again. He said, I got this. And he settled it and he sat down. Why? No other sacrifice is necessary. It's finished. It's completed. By the way, that's what Jesus claimed from the cross when he cried out, it is finished. John 19 and verse 30. By the way, that's also what was predicted hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. Hebrews 8, verses 7 and 8. Notice his argument. He says, for if that first covenant had been without fault, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll bring about, I'll effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31 Verses 31 and following. He says, This covenant will not be like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. It's going to be different than that covenant. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts. And I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And this new covenant renders the old covenant obsolete. That's a theme we'll explore more in depth in the days ahead because the writer of Hebrews, is, he's bringing to a close his case on Jesus as the high priest, uh, being superior to all the other high priests. Now he's saying Jesus enacts a new covenant which is superior to all other covenants. This is the transition point. And he punctuates that by saying Jesus sat down when he offered this offering, and he finished his work. And by the way, he stayed seated, except for on two different occasions. Now catch this, this, this one of them worship moments. If you couldn't find a reason to worship up to this point. Jesus sat down at his finished work, but you see him rising from his seat Two real reasons in the New Testament after that. One, to welcome home saints who've paid the price for the gospel. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 and 55. Stephen has just preached powerfully and he laid all of the responsibility for the death of Jesus at the feet of people who didn't want to hear it and didn't want to be responsible. Verse 54, when they heard this, 
they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They were Twitter mobbing him. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus not sitting, but standing at the right hand of God. See, as Stephen preached the gospel, as he proclaimed, <clears throat> God sent you a deliverer, but you rejected him. God sent you a deliverer which you desperately needed, but you had no time for him. As God anointed and sent a Savior, you objected and refused to acknowledge him as such. And they, they were so angry at him, they said, we're going to kill you just like we killed Jesus. And he looks up and he says, I see him. The Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And they said, oh, we are not going to tell us you've seen God. We know God. You don't know God. And they stoned him. And Jesus stood to receive him. He stands to welcome sinners home. You see him a second way. When he returns to establish his kingdom. One of these days, I'm going to preach here through the book of Revelation. But I'm just going to give you a couple of verses today because you're not ready for all of it. The, uh, when he gets ready to come back, the Bible says he comes back riding a white horse. Some people have asked me, they said, how tall is the horse? I don't know. It could be a, it could be a Mustang convertible for all I know. It's a, it's a horse. You figure it out. When you get there, you can ask him to see the stable. I don't know what you're going to do. But he's coming back riding on it, and he's the rider. How do you know he's the rider? Because Revelation 19, verse 16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he comes back to establish his kingdom, he doesn't send an ambassador or an emissary. He doesn't send an army before him or artillery to prepare the battlefield. He comes back on his own and he lays his enemies at waste and he establishes his kingdom because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And right now he's seated, but one day he'll stand and he'll stand and he'll saddle up and he's coming back to get his church. And because of that, he's a superior high priest. And this king's a victorious king. And because of Jesus, there's a promise for us that one day there'll be no separation for us from the Father. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away and new things have come. Friends, catch this now. He said that... Uh, when this whole thing's over, you're not going to need a mediator to stand, to be in your heart and stand in, in your stead in the presence of holy God. Because holy God's going to live in the midst of our presence. 
Now, catch that. That's a big deal. Because, hey, listen, Jesus, Jesus is in here. But in a way that's only, that we've not yet experienced. He's going to be here. Where's here? Where the hagios are, the saints. In their presence. Among them. And we'll be his people. And he'll be our God. And uh, we, won't go, we won't go through an in-between to get to him. Because we'll be like him. You say, how can I get into his presence? I'm an unholy wretch. <laughs> That's not all you are. See, you are a mess. Hello? Boy, that would have been the second amen point there was. Some of his wives already said it under their breath. They were like, yeah, y'all a mess. So anyway, you're a mess. And sometimes that's all you can see is the messiness of you. But you're a mess who Jesus came to fix. In fact, the Bible says that God works all these circumstances in life that you're going through in order to shape you and mold you and make you to where you're not a mess, but make you into the image of Jesus. He's doing a work. You're a mess, but you're not as messy as you're going to be. And if you're growing in Jesus, you're not as messy as you once was. Because he's doing a work in your life to shape you and mold you and make you like Jesus. If you'll let him. See, that's, that's really the final part of this thing. Because he never forces his way in on us. I mean, if it were up to me, if I were God... If this were Christianity and not Christianity, are you following me? If that were it, I'd just say everybody's in. We're all in. It's a good day. We're all in. I'm just, man, I'm just passing out salvation just like that. It's everybody gets a little bit. That's why I do it. But I'm not him. And I can't do that. Here's what he said. Payment settled. Atonement sufficient. Offer extended. But you and I have got to say, yes, sir. Now, here's what's crazy, and then I'll be done. Sometimes we grow up in a culture like we grow up in in the South. Some of you not from the South, you say, I didn't grow up here. Don't hang that on me. Okay, okay, not you, everybody else. Grow up thinking, I must be a Christian. I mean, there's a church down the street. I must be a Christian because one day I asked Jesus into my heart. I must be a Christian because one day I prayed a prayer and got a picture where I got wet. Or I didn't get wet, but I was going to get wet if I thought about getting wet and if it wasn't going to mess up my hairdo. But see, God looks at my heart <laughs> and he also said get wet. But I digress. You may be holding on to something like that and yet there's this little thing in the back of your mind that says something's off. Everybody else, thinks I'm, everybody else thinks I'm a Christian. I mean, after all, I've been at that church since Moby Dick was a minnow. I mean, I, everybody thinks I'm a Christian. I sing on the praise team. I preach. I, uh, I'm a deacon. I'm a, man, I attend there a lot. I give money. I must be a Christian. Everybody thinks I'm a Christian. Chris, I know I'm not. 
But I, I don't want to say I'm not because that'll throw everybody off. They'll, they'll, they already think I am. You know what? Maybe it's time for you and I to care more about what he thinks than what they think, right? And here's what you don't know. They all know they a mess too. Because this is the land of misfit toys. And I'm the mayor. We all in this thing together. We're a mess. And we would rather rejoice over someone who said, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Than to think, man, I thought you was. See, it's, here's the deal. If you walked in here and there was something off, whether you knew you were not a Christ follower or you just suspected it, today would be a great day for you to know that you're with Him and that He is the superior high priest and He is sufficient for you. And when He sat down, He sat down because He accomplished the work for you. How can you know that? It's not by saying Jesus I want to be a Christian, be my Savior. The Bible says it's by committing to follow Him. Are you hearing me? Follow Him. Jesus said, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. That's actually the call. Well, Chris, how can I follow him if I don't know where he's going? That's the point of following you don't have to know where he's going. You just have to know who's in front of you as you follow him. You understand that? Well, I'd follow him if he'd give me a map. You wouldn't need to follow him. You could just get there on your own. He wants you to follow him. Well, how do I know he's not going to lead me in a bad place? Listen to me. How could you even think such a thing? And if he led you into a tough spot, you know he wouldn't lead you there by yourself. He's leading you there, meaning he's with you. Last verse. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. In other words, when he said all authority, now catch this, he said all authority. That's a greater authority than your professor of your world religion class in college. He said all authorities. He said he's got more authority than the Supreme Court of the United States. Praise the Lord. And more authority than Raleigh. Praise the Lord. And more authority than Washington, D.C. Can I get an alleluia? That's a, he's all, hey, all authority, all authority, all, all authority. That means there's no one nowhere at any point in time who has more authority than him or has any authority in his presence. All authority. He's got authority over every king. He's got authority over every president, over every legislature, over every judicial person. He's got authority over every despot, every tyrant, over everyone because he said all authority has been given to me. Well, that's just in heaven, Chris. It's not like that on earth. In heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Hey, make followers of me. Make disciples of all peoples. Peoples, nations, like the one we prayed for a few moments ago, like the one, the people that live next door to you left and right and across the street. Make disciples of all peoples. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe, to live out, to do all things which I've commanded. And then here's what he said, verse 20, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You'll not go anywhere solo. I got you. I'm with you. And that promise is for you. If you take his extended offer in his hand. And I can't think of a better thing to do or a better day to do it than today. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.